Good morning, all. Um, thank you so much for coming today in this beautiful historic building. And the weather is also smiling with us. And hopefully we'll be able to give you today some insight in what ship finance is looking at the moment and what the outlook will probably be in the short to the medium term. Unfortunately, probably the panelists will agree with me today that the long-term uncertainty um, is revolving around us and no one will be able to predict the future. It would be lovely if we all had a crystal ball, but unfortunately we can't. The UK economy, where um, we are holding this today, in this historic building in London, unfortunately has caught up with the rest of the uncertainties around the world. And I think there might be even a race between the number of the chancellors we're going to get through this year with how fast Henry VIII changed his wives. <laughs> So trying to start probably on a lighter touch here, I would like to introduce my esteemed panel, Nicolas Duran from our sponsor, Fernley Securities. We've got Mr. Vasilis Maroulis from Citigroup. We've got Mr. Carl Rader, Vice President from Bocom Shipping. And finally, we've got Mr. Tim So here from Accession Finance. Um, it's a wonderful panel because each of my panelists will be able to give us some insights from a different perspective, but all trying to address the uncertainties of what it is that the lenders think about the current market, what it is that they can continue to do and to help our lovely ship owners and operators who have been best friends with the lenders throughout all of their lifetimes in building their own empires. Without these guys here, I don't think any of our own sh ship owners would have been as successful as they are. So I'd like to invite each of my panelists, please, um, to tell us what it is that they currently offer in the space of the ship finance market and where do they di actually differentiate uh, from other lenders or finance providers. Um, Nicholas, would you like to start? Yeah, thank you very much. So um, we have a, uh, at Friendly Securities, we are a traditional investment bank. Uh, I would say uh, mostly focused on uh, maritime and energy related industries. We uh, raise equity and, and, and debt and do advisory, but in terms of this panel and, and what's relevant for that, on the debt side, we have a debt advisory team that covers the um, traditional DCM product, so secured, unsecured, convertible bonds. Uh, but in addition, I think we've spent some years building up a fairly successful franchise on raising uh, alternative debt from uh, the Asian market. So in particular, the Japanese market and to some extent the Taiwanese market, where I think we've, uh, we're sort of consistently uh, quite active. And then, of course, like everyone else, we, we try to tap the Chinese market from time to time as well. So I'd say across the spectrum from SOFR plus 160 super competitive senior secured bank debt from Japanese lenders all the way up to, you know, high single digit, low double digit, uh, you know, fairly onerous uh, debt from, from some of the, which we say, more opportunistic uh, debt providers. Thank you. I'll go. So yes, yeah, so so I, I head our business for City for shipping, logistics, and offshore globally. Uh, what we offer with regards to uh, product offering is everything in terms of from a simple day-to-day -day, uh, platform to to be able to to move cash along to the most complicated. Uh, capital structure elements. So whether it is on the debt side, the equity side, M&A, advisory, uh, um, 
assistance. And then, of course, we have um, this, the senior secured book that we offer, book and hold positions. We have unsecured positions, the ECA positions, and, and, and multiple other things. The globality of the institution is, I think, important and fits the shipping industry in a tremendous way. Also, the fact that we are a dollar house and, and therefore fits with the, uh, the currency of this industry. So all in all, we can offer all of that and then coupled with ECA uh, elements, if that is something that one opts for. And then uh, very recently, the fact, of course, that as a result of the global nature and the various places that we are on the ground and especially uh, the fact that we, we do have licenses in many places, including Japan, we are able to combine structures which until recently were not uh, easily combinable. So therefore, ECA structures together with JOLCO and other stuff. So all in all, we can offer for uh, our clients, and we do have a very strict target market policy, um, all of the banking services that one would require. Thank you, Vasilis. Carl? Well, following on on that, um, we as Bocom Leasing are today one of the leading leasing houses in the market. Um, we offer financial and operating leases um, to basically the first tier ship owners, um, but also industrial companies directly, which has been very much a focus of what we have been doing the past year. Um, I think what differentiates us to a certain extent from bank lending is that we have the capacity to do major transactions on our own. So meaning that a transaction in excess of 200, 250 million is something we can easily do as one single ticket. Um, that has clearly been an advantage uh, of our offering in the market. Besides that, we, at the end of the day, serve very much the same field as the conventional banks would do um, and would also compete with the Japanese and Taiwanese uh, leasing structures when it comes to smaller tickets. That has very much been the focus of our work uh, in the past year. Now what we, what we see and what is emerging step by step, especially looking into some stronger second tier owners, is that we start lending on a lower leverage basis, um, more on assets that have less long employment, um, that are with fairly smaller owners, that is a market that we're developing step by step and where we're trying to find a grasp uh, going forward. Thank you, Carl. Great. Um, so Ascension is a non-bank alternative lender. We offer senior secured first lien debt, focusing on the liquid asset classes, so container, dry bulk, product, and crude. In terms of the way we structure our loans, they are designed to look very similar to traditional bank debt in terms of structure. We take a mortgage and a lot of the terms will be familiar to borrowers who are used to bank debt. And our, our target market are generally small and medium-sized owners who may no longer have access to bank financing. In terms of what differentiates us, I guess, particularly against your more traditional bank financing, we can be flexible when it comes to age, when it comes to recourse, and when it comes to employment. And more recently, we've been looking at structures that include bridge financing, especially if you need to have the facility put in place quickly and you're willing to then put in place a longer-term facility afterwards, we can offer bridge financing. And we've also been looking into the possibility of offering 
hunting licenses where the vessel hasn't been named from the outset, but instead you're borrowing against a set list of uh, parameters on the vessel. Thank you. So quite naturally, quite a diverse panel and a, and a great diversity of access to capital and various structures, um, which is probably music to most of the owners here in the audience who, after the event, of course, will have access to all of our panelists to discuss in more detail any of their um, lending and capital raising access needs that they may need. However, um, we all know that um, shipping has gone through the quiet period in 2020 when the whole world actually came to a halt, but now is still continuing to weather this storm somehow. Um, we had the global pandemic, which no one could have foreseen with the back-to-back -back war. And I'd like to ask my panelists, how do they foresee that shipping will actually weather this storm? Well, <clears throat> I can start by saying that uh, I, I agree that the world's in turmoil, but in terms of the shipping industry, I'm not sure it's a storm. Okay. I mean, the, the, there are you know, two segments, dry cargo and containers, that have seen a substantial softening uh, in recent months, but I would say overall all the other segments are firing more or less on all cylinders. Uh, you know, One-year TCs across most segments are well above historical averages. So I'd say that the shipping industry is in quite good shape. I think part of the reasons that some specific segments are doing really well, uh, as we've heard earlier, is of course because of the uh, challenging geopolitical situation which is really upending a lot of the, the trades and creating inefficiency. So I think that um, luckily a lot of the, or the average shipping company, uh, let's call it that, over the last uh, two years has probably been uh, strengthening their balance sheet, um, you know, seeing massive cash flows, repaying debt, and are not in a position uh, where they, fortunately for them in the industry, a bit unfortunate for people like us, of course, that they don't need, uh, they don't need that much uh, capital. So uh, I think that they're in pretty good shape, and when the storm does come, because this is obviously going to come off at some stage, uh, they're going to face that storm uh, with a much stronger balance sheet and uh, also lower order book in most segments than we've seen in the past. Right? So um, we're quite optimistic. Yeah, I'll, I'll echo what, what Nicholas said in terms of, you know, um, I, I do sincerely believe that all segments are in a materially better place than they were before. Um, the outlook uh, seems to be, uh, you know, one where I can comment as a, you know, cautiously optimistic, and I would say across all segments. At the same point in time, um, I've, been, I've been doing this for City for almost 20 years, you know, there are some data points which are coming in, uh, I think increasingly, and have started in August into September, which clearly indicate that there is a, um, I wouldn't say significant recession, but I would definitely say that uh, the economy is not firing all cylinders in terms of the global economy, and that's, a, you know, we're seeing it on the container side, we're seeing it on the dry bulk side, but it is, it is significant, and therefore the question is, Whereas on the fundamental side, you know, the order book is extremely low across the board. There is, you know, potentially further tightening as a result of regulatory changes and, and things coming in 1st of January. The question is, you know, what is the demand going to, to look like and whether, you know, what we are beginning to see in some of the segments, whether this bites uh, uh, in, in others. But I think... Cautiously optimistic, I do agree with Nicholas, you know, most of the companies are in a significant better place to be able to uh, 
withstand pressure, but, uh, and maybe it will never come. Uh, and of course, all of this excludes Black Swan event events, which, uh, you know, as a result of, you know, material hostilities or, or, or other unforeseen events. But in general, cautiously optimistic uh, across the board, I would say, but, uh, you know, things to look out for as uh, some data points are, uh, you know, increasingly worrying. I think from our side, we can only confirm that um, we sit a bit in between chairs in the sense that many of our clients have extremely solid balance sheets today. And there's the question of do they actually need the money, the high leverage that we typically offer. Um, so there's, there's clearly a shift there. At the same, the same time, we're facing exactly the same outlook that you just described, looking into the next year where there's a question mark when it comes to demand, and I think there you need to start to differentiate um, by segment. There are some segments where if on top of the demand side, supply starts um, to be worrying, then there's clearly a question mark there and we need to address that somehow in our structures. There's other segments where this is more positive, where the demand side will definitely not be impacted in the, in the same sense. But in that respect, it's a bit of a peculiar market and for us a new market as well, I think that's something uh, to highlight as well because if you look at the portfolios of the Chinese leasing houses, they were incorporated in the early 2010s, um, building through a market with all on average fairly low asset values and now we have to address the situation for the first time with extremely high asset values and we need to adapt to that and I think there's, there's really two ways of doing that uh, today. Uh, the one strategy that we follow is that we look at very long-term project with uh, industrial companies that are capitalizing on basically the green transition and, and renewing their fleet with all sorts of um, greener propulsions. Those projects are really key for us today and that's something we still do also on the, on, on the basis of higher asset values. And the other one is just simply to reduce the leverage looking into uh, into the, uh, the market today. Okay. Yeah, I think if you're lending five, seven-year money, there's a strong chance you're going to see at least one or two downturns, whether that's a small dip or a large crash in, in whichever asset class you're looking at. And it comes down to structuring your, your loans so that you're prepared for that. And whether that, like Carla said, if it's an industry that is currently doing very well and reducing what that headline loan to value would be to a more sustainable number across that five-year horizon, or if it's in an industry that is doing badly, um, at least at the moment, not getting caught up in that recovery story to then offer something too aggressive on the back end. So I think you're, as a lender, you are going to be in a position where there'll be some sort of market dislocation at some point in whichever sector you're looking at, and it's about how do you structure that so that you're comfortable your loan is going to be performing regardless of where in the sector you'll be. Thank you. So clearly the shipping has managed to rebound from the global pandemic and is showing resilience um, in the current um, uncertainties which are all global effects um, and they all affect us um, alike. And I think I'd like to ask my panellists with the alternative financing in place and also the bank financing are the operators, um, ship owners, now looking at like a combined structure of type of investments, so more complex investment structures? Because the balance sheets are strong, the NAVs are strong, 
um, how do you actually assess them for the next projects coming up? Do you want to start, Vasilis? No, Thank you. Um, so, so it, it, it totally depends on the client and totally depends on the project, as far as you know, we can see. So there is no pattern across the board. So there are some projects which, you know, uh, ultimately, uh, regardless of how the st strong or weak uh, the potential uh, company is, they may want to maximize leverage. If you want to do that, there are multiple structures in potentially where some which you can combine uh, leasing structures together with uh, traditional financing. And therefore, on the back of that, uh, be able to maximize leverage all the way to 100% uh, contract. Uh, that, of course, assumes that you have some off-take agreement or whether it's not an off-take agreement, some, uh, agreement or some charter agreement. I think it would be, you know. And then, of course, in terms of where you end up, in terms of the solution, is also the, the element of the size of the project. So it's, it's one story when one, someone is building something that is worth 100 million, it's a different story when someone is building something, you know, whether it's one asset like an FLNG or multiple uh, vessels which you know, can go into the billion. So all of it together, uh, you know, I, I think you know, one needs to consider both corporate that, that is borrowing, but also the specific project. But I think, yes, they can combine, and I think one of the things that I've repeatedly said to anyone that asks me is, uh, you know, everyone that sits on this panel, in my view at least, is uh, complementary to, to each other. So, you know, we are not in direct competition, in my view, and the way the shipping finance market has shrunk uh, in the past, you know, 15 years, I would say that, you know, the more the merrier and, you know, there's, there's room for everyone. But definitely 100% uh, uh, to, to cooperate and, uh, and find solutions for clients. Yeah, I think we, we obviously cover a very broad uh, set of, of products and solutions from, you know, global and very broad set of, of capital providers. We are an advisor and an arranger. But um, what I see is that, you know, with just to quote the DNV report that was uh, given out, with the uh, decarbonization of shipping, you know, there's some pretty wild numbers being thrown out there. I think the number I saw was between 30 and $80 billion of investment needed um, over the next decades, you know, it's going to be really difficult to finance that. Uh, you're going to need all types of capital sources. You're going to need uh, equity capital markets, debt capital markets, uh, private equity, private debt, mezzanine, junior, everything's going to have to go in there to make it work. And you can see, okay, uh, clearly the trends are favoring the larger corporate entities that are strongly preferred by uh, the banks and, and some of the larger leasing institutions that are kind of maybe moving a bit in that direction. But I think the majority of the global fleet is owned by the five to ten ship ship owners in certain segments. <clears throat> and they're going to want to stay in that business as well. And, and, you know, to a lesser and lesser extent, at least in the poor market, I think that kind of ship owner struggles to get a lot of attention from the large traditional lenders. So I think that uh, there's, a, there's a need for everyone. And I think that uh, we need uh, quite a wide diversity of both sources and products in the decades to come. Thank you. I totally agree with that. I mean, if you look at the point in time when the Chinese leasing started filling a void from the early 2010s onwards, 
um, that was basically compensating part of the ship finance of the classic banks that were leaving the market. Now we had quite a good ride, we managed to establish ourselves as, as really players of this market, but times are changing and if we look into say the short term, the one, one and a half years to come now, on the one hand we see that many of our clients uh, that we've been very active with the past say five, six, seven years are now going back to the classic ship financing market because they do, they're not in need of leverage of say 85, 90% any longer, they can live with 70%. There's a real arbitrage of equity against that that the prices we're looking at today. So that's something that in the short term is definitely influencing our business. Now, if you look beyond that, I think there's clearly a need and a place for major capital providers in the shipping industry for exactly that reason that Nicholas mentioned earlier, um, which is decarbonization and long-term sustainability. And that's really the field where we see the potential to deploy the large amounts of capital that, that we have allocated. I think traditionally as well for alternative finance, that SME type of borrower is not really going to be able to receive financing from the, the other institutions on this panel, but which is where a lot of our core market sits. But even in addition to that, we're seeing increasing interest from borrowers who can still access financing from larger traditional banks, but for assets that those banks no longer want to finance. So we have conversations of borrowers who want to finance um, a ship in its teens one last time, just to, until the end of its useful economic life, and for whatever reason, that's no longer something that a traditional bank will finance. So we are able to offer a complementary solution within someone's capital structure if they want to lever up older ships. And so even there, although we're going after the same borrower, I'd argue it is still a complementary product because we're, we're trying to finance different assets. Thank you. And it's quite an interesting topic that has been raised, and it was one of the follow-up questions that we had regarding the ESG compliance. We cannot move away, no, no longer we can move away from all of these social responsibilities that we've got around decarbonisation, ESG compliance, and everything, the Poseidon principles, which is a fantastic work that the lenders have done, and the banks all working all together in addition to the usual Basel III and Basel IV regulations. Um, I'd like to hear from my panelists, how does that affect um, the lending criteria? Of course, um, everyone has a social responsibility towards all of our um, ESG compliance, even in our daily life. Um, and obviously, shipping by extension, it supplies 98% of the goods around the world. So um, one of the operators yesterday, interestingly, he's also a banker supplier, um, said to me that for the smaller operators, ESG funding is actually a barrier for them because of the fact that they own the older ships. Um, so therefore, there is not so much appetite. I'd like to disagree now from what I've heard with my um, panelists. But I'd quite like to hear it from, from, from yourselves because we all know, um, as you all mentioned actually, as a consistent theme, the order book for 2023 is looking a little light at the moment. And the second-hand um, S&P market is flourishing. So all of these ships are going around the world. Um, it, it, it seems to be that now a 14-year-old ship is considered to be an old ship which was never the case, let's say, five, six years ago. Um, so can I have the panellists' view on that, please, in terms of the funding 
access? Yeah. <clears throat> sure, I think that um, this is, we've seen a few examples that I think are quite interesting where uh, especially alternative lenders come in into that. Uh, clearly the larger institutions, maybe mainly driven by, by some of the larger Western traditional lenders, uh, are very ESG focused and, and, and I think rightfully so. The, the larger forces in the debt financing or the ship financing industry really need to be the driver of, of that change. Uh, but we all know that this is a gradual process and there's going to be a lot of uh, smaller ship owners or owners of older vessels that shouldn't be forced to scrap or sell their vessels just because they can't refinance maturity on the 14-year-old ship. I think that's where the alternative lenders come in, also on segments where the banks have very clearly taken a negative stance. Uh, I'm thinking, for example, of, of the offshore sector, uh, looking at some of the uh, CSVs and, and OSV vessels where banks have burnt their fingers and decided that they're not going to lend to that industry, at least not in a very meaningful way. We've seen examples there where some of the alternatives, uh, alternative lenders have come in and there's almost like an arbitrage opportunity where they've come in and financed assets that are actually working in the offshore wind space, but they're kind of classified because they're originally built as a CSV. And so you've had alternative lenders come in and do deals in, in that space with fantastic uh, return or unlevered returns, uh, whereas the banks have just kind of made it an in-principle decision not to finance that kind of asset. So I think they're... There's a solution for, for everyone, including those with older ships and, and call it segments that are not in favor with, with the lenders. So finance is available for everyone. It's just a question of where you find it and what you want to pay for it. Thank you, Nicholas. Yeah, so so um, ESG, I mean, for us, uh, each and every uh, letter of uh, both the E and the S and the G is, is a focus. Uh, and. On the G, we, on governance, we have been one of the strictest in terms of uh, institutions out there. But in terms of, you know, and I, I would like to sort of um, thinking about how the, the element of deca decarbonizing, and that's exactly what, what it's all about. It's not a, a, a way to sort of like attack fossil fuels in any way. It's more about trying to decarbonize the fleet, and that's what... That's what the attempt is all about. So if there are solutions, and increasingly it seems that, you know, uh, things are being considered in, in, in which uh, the, the carbon footprint of the corresponding vessel can be reduced significantly without needing to shift uh, propulsion systems, and then that is ultimately what uh, most of the financiers want. At the same point in time, I do believe that you know, we, we, we as an industry uh, have a, an unbelievable opportunity uh, ahead of us. Uh, it's one where the existing fleet either will need to be uh, totally uh, refitted in whichever way or replaced. And therefore, for those that are in the market, for those that can find solutions and provide solutions, then those solutions, uh, you know, will be financed, I'm certain of it. Um, at the same point in time, the Poseidon principles, which is, uh, you know, a lot of people have their own views and uh, each and every viewpoint is, is well respected, is one that I believe uh, has provided the ability for the banks that are signatories to be able to continue be in business in a significant way. And you know, why? Because you are what you can measure. If you are just saying, look, you know, I don't know what it is, I have no idea how to measure my portfolio, 
then effectively, you know, from a, you know, banking is a heavily regulated market, and you know, if a response like that probably takes you out of business. And the last point that I uh, that I would say, which is I think is important, is the pressure that is going to be coming from the financier is going to be nothing compared to the pressure that is going to come from the customers of the owners. That's the most important thing. We're seeing it, we're seeing it already. So scope three emissions and the level of pressure that will be applied uh, is significant. It's already happening, you know, uh, if you speak to any of the car carrier uh, uh, players, you, you know, it's, it's already there, it's happening, beginning to happen significantly on the container operator side. So it's only going to come, and when it does, it might as well be prepared and have a way to address it. Or, but, you know, have a, a journey uh, mapped out. And that's the most important thing. It is a journey, it's not a, it's not a shift. So therefore, it's all about, have you thought about it? What are you trying to do, and how are you going to address the needs to, in order for your business to be able to, uh, to continue to be um, relevant for your customers? Thank you. Yeah, maybe following up on the point of the, of the customer, of the end user, um, we did not change our lending criteria over the past years. But what we clearly see is that the end users have a willingness to decarbonize and do it fairly quick. And for us, it reflects in, in basically two structures. The one is, or the first one is that on time charter transactions, where we finance a vessel that we get a time charter from one of the big charters in the market, if we're talking a new building that is dual fuel energy, there is the potential to see a slightly longer charter say seven years instead of five. Yeah? And this makes it much easier for us to finance the premium, um, the pricing premium that we see on such assets. And that's clearly a willingness that we see in the market and where we've been doing business uh, based on. The other one is that shipping has, in our opinion, gained an importance for the industrial end users. Um, there's a clear strategy um, for most of them to decarbonize within a set time frame and they're acting according to it. Meaning that if you look at our business, we see some of the, these people coming to us with a clear mindset of saying, we need this and this design, this vessel, and we're willing to take a leasing structure onto our balance sheet long-term, it'll be seven, 10, 12 years, um, in order to make this work. And that's very much been driving our business, and I think it will continue to do so. Fantastic, thank you. I think as an alternative lender that will finance older assets, we still look at ESG because even just from a pure credit perspective, a more efficient vessel will have lower operating costs, it'll be more attractive to a charterer, it should have a better residual value when it comes to sale. So even if you don't have a formalised ESG programme, it is definitely credit positives to finance more environmentally friendly ships. I think. To, to Nicholas's point about should a 14-year-old vessel be scrapped because the owner can't get financing for it, there is a, an environmental impact to breaking a ship and then building a new one just to replace something that hasn't been financed. And I guess that's where concepts of financing the transition ar arise from, this idea that 
between now and a, a net zero shipping industry, there is still a need for older ships. You can't just remove them entirely from the supply chain. So there is a middle ground between having very strict ESG principles that restrict you to financing five-year-old ships and, and ensuring that there's still vessels in the supply chain. And that, that's kind of the middle ground that we're trying to, to, trying to achieve. It is great to know that obviously um, all of our financiers today all think alike and they all share the same ethos of keeping up and in line with the ESG compliance and applying different criteria to, of course, fit within their portfolio. But we can't escape from being here in London and talking about the capital markets being a capital link um, event. Uh, we do have established ship owners who are listed in Stock Exchange, London Stock Exchange itself has seen a rising boom in the listings in the last two years. Perhaps in the last six months, the, um, the listings might have stalled a little bit in order for the markets to react to the uncertainties and, um, of course, the changes that are happening um, worldwide. But I'd like to know from my um, panelists as to the appetite that they would have for a listing company to invest um, into a listing company by way of debt or even equity or even a joint structure. Um, Nicholas, would you be able to offer us some insight? Um, <clears throat> sorry, just so I got the question right, that the appetite from the, uh, call it investor universe, or from the, uh, from the ship on... From the ship finance perspective, would you invest in listed companies, or oh, okay. provide finance to listed companies? Fina okay, so assume we're talking about uh, debt here of some sort, I think that uh, there's been a pretty clear preference to, to finance the listed companies versus uh, private companies, just as a general observation, and then there's uh, many exceptions to that rule, of course. I think that um, what we see of the basket of listed companies within shipping that we see today, I think that's more or less what the uh, basket will look like six to 12 months from now or two years from now. I think with a few exceptions, uh, there's probably not a lot of room to list a lot more uh, companies. So I think that, uh, you know, expecting to see, even though there's a preference from a lot of lenders to deal with listed companies, I don't think that's going to drive any, any change in terms of whether people go public or not. Uh, I don't know if that answers the question. Yes, it does, of course. Um, the idea was, of course, that um, the, the listed companies are seen more as the solid structures, the ones that can provide all of the compliance and the social governance. To, to go to Vasily's points, they will tick all the boxes on the governance um, section. But there is also the stock market and how that plays out and the uncertainties around it. Yeah. Um, I just want to add one thing there. I think sure. that the issue today is that uh, from an equity investor perspective, there is a uh, sufficient, with some exceptions, but there is generally uh, a sufficient number of investable companies that cover the shipping space. So you want to invest in product tankers, there is a critical mass of, of, uh, of um, companies you can invest in. You want to invest in, uh, maybe LNG is an exception because a lot of LNG companies were taken private a couple of years ago. but. You know, I think in general, investors do find somewhere to invest. And so I think that f with a few exceptions, again, if you wanted to go and list a company in order to access cheaper debt or have better access to the banks, I think you'd have to probably give away of equity value in order to, to achieve that. So I don't think that's going to be a big driver. Yeah, I, I think 
I think there is a misconception with regards to you know a, a publicly listed entity suddenly having access to debt to debt financing, uh, whereas a private uh, entity uh, has more limited access to to uh, debt cap uh, debt capital in, in whichever shape or form. Um, that's not the case. Um, you know you can have a 100% private owner that has you know. The, the appropriate disclosures, they can be effectively 100% operating like a publicly listed entity into, in all uh, elements of their operations in terms of the disclosure, in terms of their governance and everything else. And of course, yes, it's controlled by one family or one individual. But as long as there is professional management, there is a clear view in terms of continuation and multiple other things, I do, not, I do not think that there is a, a delta in terms of potential appetite. What is there is clearly, you know, there could be a delta on what various institutions call wallet size with regards to that uh, corresponding entity. And therefore, uh, you know, of course, uh, debt and equity capital markets activity allow you to be able to price the capital that you provide to that entity in a potentially different way. So that's, I think, the, 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 the difference, if you wish. I do not see it as a difference in terms of potential access. Uh, and, you know, private owners can have access to uh, um, the, the debt capital markets. Uh, of course, with, you know, depending on where you want to go, you know, you may require uh, ratings, uh, um, public ratings or private ratings or whichever way. But all in all, it is, you know, you can, you can continue to, to lead the private business and have access uh, uh, and significant one uh, uh, should you, of course, be able to, to, to tick all the other the boxes. And of course, publicly listed entities do, does not mean that they do have access to debt financing if they're all over the place in multiple things, including, you know, their capital structure and other things. So it's, uh, you know. It's, uh, I'm not sure if I'm answering the question, but uh, you know. You are definitely uh, you answering know. the questions because that is always the perception that if you are a listed company, you do have access to, to debt, you have access to capital, only because you are listed and therefore there is an expectation that you will have your house in order. But just as successfully, we all know that there are um, shipping uh, family-run businesses that operate in an absolutely immaculate way and they are just as good uh, from their um, provider from their compliance and everything they're just not listed for their own different reasons so thank you Vasilis Tim uh, sorry Carl. Carl, Carl I think for us uh, it's fairly simple it's not a differentiating uh, factor whether a company is listed or not it boils more down to the quality of the balance sheet the transparency of uh, documentation they provide to us and the view that we have of that company now by the nature of the market we're in um, looking at industrial companies, first-year ship owners, of course many are uh, listed, but there's excellent private companies that have been long-term partners for us, and uh, it's, it's really not a differentiating factor uh, in the daily business that we do, whether a company is listed or not. I, th I think more broadly as well, the, when we speak to debt investors, the, the more clear delineation is between what they conceive to be illiquid shipping debt facilities versus um, just being able to go out into the market and buy bonds. Like, given where the market is now, you can get double-digit returns on 
triple B minus double B plus loans and so uh, sorry um, bonds and so why would you go through the effort of structuring a shipping facility if you can go out into the market and get something a lot more liquid a lot more easily and so once I think someone has come round to the idea of shipping being a good asset class because you have security you can really structure your loan agreement to be quite sound in terms of making sure that you don't lose money then no there isn't really a difference between a large private company and a public company. The, the real difference comes from someone choosing to A, invest in real assets and B, invest in shipping over any other type of debt instrument that they can get into potentially a little bit easier. Thank you. Thank you so much. I am really sorry to the audience that I did not have enough time to actually uh, take any questions, but I'm sure my panelists here will be very glad to take any during the coffee break. Um, thank you so much for being here and thank you so much for being here for the audience. Thank you. Thank you.